friend that used to smoke. To renewable, that's going to help us. You need just frameworks, frameworks centered around adjustment. You need investment into communities, not into fossil fuels. Investment into communities before even renewable resources. And that's not to say that investing into communities couldn't look like renewable resources. But when we're only money focused, we're not getting at the problem. It's always going to be profit over people if we think that way. And it's that ideology mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> that's destroying us. How can we prioritize environmental justice in a capitalist system? It is now more crucial than ever that we question our established systems, which have proven to be fraught with hierarchy and marginalization. As we pursue climate-focused development, we must take caution to not perpetuate systemic injustice. In this interview, CJL Divest campaign leader Eloise Navarro discusses how we can put our communities first as we strive to develop new frameworks for consuming energy. Better fucking do something real soon. I tell people what to do. Climate Justice League. Thanks for being here today, Eloise. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. So I think a lot of our listeners on the Climate Justice Network podcast are probably here because they love the planet and they're curious about environmentalism. They want to save the plants, uh, which is awesome and so laudable. Like we all want to save the plants, but a lot of us might not immediately see how climate change issues can relate to broader societal issues. And I mean, I don't think it's entirely obvious to a lot of people, like doesn't pollution affect everyone equally? That's, that is the question. Um, but a lot of it really comes down to like the, the foundations, if, if we're looking just at the US, but the foundations of this country and our foundations and our roots are in white supremacy, it's in colonialism, capitalism, violence, all of these things. And so the same way that we see racial issues emerging and environmental issues emerging, they're, they're coming from the exact same roots. And so of course they're gonna intersect. And so we see this in public health issues. We, th we see this in rights to life and to water and to food. One of, one of the first thing that comes to mind is the Dakota Access Pipeline. Such a big event that kind of shows people trying to get healthy, not even healthy, just water, non-polluted water, it's somehow a political issue. So when you say roots, the roots that have mm -hmm. caused these uh, disparities that created issues with the pipeline and with underserved communities, mm -hmm. are you talking about uh, like kind of our socioeconomic system? Are you talking about um, transnationalism? Like what it, what sort of exact factors are you pulling from there? All, all of that that you just mentioned. Um, of course, like the big one that jumps in, into my head is slavery is, is the foundation mm -hmm. of the United States. And there's a lot of obvious ways in that that has manifested and continued today. We think of indigenous communities here, of course, this land was 
was colonized and now the people who cared for it so obvious human geography impacts of um kind of our our roots in racism have led to um economic and social disparities let's yeah. talk about maybe how that um distribution of people with racially and economically marginalized communities kind of being forced into certain areas how does that perpetuate burdens on those communities that can be exacerbated by environmental issues so like here's here's my example i i was <laughs> looking into some statistics um before this interview and i saw that 68 percent of african americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. Yeah, I think it all it all goes back to the those foundations. The the ideologies that were in place while making those decisions are the same ideologies that we still use today. And so you could we could see that statistic, but it's likely that nothing will be done about it because today we still have this dehumanization of BIPOC people. Obviously, white supremacy is still at play. And capitalism will always um, function off of keeping people in these positions, in these powerless positions, whether that's having them in environmentally unstable areas or whether that's working off of the poverty of people. We need, we need that mm-hmm. to function the way that we do. So I would say that the fossil fuel industries, which is kind of um, our central goal in this um, campaign is trying to reduce UO's um, investments and the Mm. larger community's investments in the fossil fuel industry. I would say that the fossil fuel industry is probably one of like the nastier appendages of capitalism. Like Mm -hmm. it's it's gross looking. So um, how specifically does the fossil fuel industry contribute to all these ways that we're saying capitalism keeps people keeps people down, continues to perpetuate disparities between the BIPOC community and the more privileged side of our country? So fossil fuel and kind of the whole oil industry, one of the largest money-making industries in the world. And so what's happening right now is we are investing in these crude oils, in these fossil fuels, before we're investing in in communities before we're investing in BIPOC and other underserved or underrepresented voices, especially especially when fossil fuel investments value, their value is going down, yet so many are still invested, that's directly saying, we care more about this than we care about issues ABC. And typically issues ABC is racial inequality, climate injustice. So what about people who say, um, if we invest in fossil fuels, then we can give more jobs to African-Americans or we can um, we can give jobs to underserved communities. What about that? What, what is, what, what's the issue with that? <laughs> My guess is that they're more likely to literally destroy those communities than uplift them. Good God, my children have become such radicals. I'm white and I live near fossil fuel infrastructure too. Please, kiddo, explain to me where the racism is here. Well, Dad, actually 68% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, even though they own only 1.1% of energy-related jobs in the United States. Okay, but even so, the fossil fuel industry is the backbone of this country's economy. 
What's wrong with living next to such facilities? There is actually evidence of a wide range of long-term health problems correlated with living near these kinds of places. Birth defects, heart disease, asthma, it simply isn't just clean air. As a matter of fact, African Americans are more likely to have lung disease than white people, even though they are less likely to smoke. Industrial waste from these facilities is often riddled with lead toxins too, and kids living in these toxic, smoggy environments often struggle with learning difficulties. Being in close proximity to these facilities depress not just communities, education facilities, and individual mental health, but property values too. This in turn de-incentivizes governments from providing quality education and other services. These kinds of positive feedback loops are how poverty continues to thrive and spread, despite our ever-growing GDP. How can investing in renewable energy as opposed to investing in fossil fuels help to change this pattern of systemic oppression? That is a good question. And I think I'll start off by saying that moving to clean energy won't inherently cause climate justice. And the reason is it depends on who is creating these renewable energy development products, um, projects, sorry. Right, because if we let capitalism run it, it's just going to do the same thing. Right, right. And, and that's, that's an example of, of using, you know, monetary or, or, or fiscal solutions to things that aren't fiscal problems. Because if, if the problem here is climate justice, and our first step is, let's put a windmill here. It's not a very <laughs> comprehensive solution. I was just reading this article about the wind energy sector in Oaxaca, Mexico, and that's a very super windy place. What ended up happening is that they're like, oh, this would be a great spot for renewable energies. But who, who was creating those projects? It was the state plus Walmart plus Coca-Cola because then becomes an awesome investment opportunity. And you know, who wasn't included in, in the conversation was local fishermen, it was local indigenous communities. And so yes, I think the transition to renewable is really important for the people on this earth, but it doesn't matter if the climate justice aspect of it is an afterthought. Renewable energy won't inherently fix climate justice issues. So really it's about um, beginning to prioritize uh, renewable energy, but also giving the power back to the community, is what you're saying. Kind of, I, I talk about these roots and foundations all the time, but it's true, it, it's, it's a foundational issue. It's not just this automatic change to renewable that's gonna help us. You need just frameworks, frameworks centered around adjustment. You need investment into communities, not into fossil fuels. All right, all right, fine, I get it. But look, this system is important. It's why the US has such a beautifully powerful economy, like you just mentioned. Beautiful for who? Power for who? Remember how I said that African Americans hold only 1.1% of energy jobs in the United States? Well, that demographic only gains 0.01% of the revenue from these industries. Wealth in the US constantly flows upwards. A handful of primarily white men born into extreme power sit at the top of the totem pole, growing ever richer without doing any work. Meanwhile, racial minorities continue to be ever more impoverished and sickened so as to keep that upward flow happening. From the outside, it looks like a country getting richer together. Teamwork, right? Well, in actuality, it's more like an oligarchy. The fossil fuel industry is one of the key markets that continuously pushes our country dangerously close to a sort of neo-feudalism. I've heard a, a lot of people make the argument that we could not effectively transition to renewable energy sources if it 
isn't run by capitalism. Like people say, um, like the government does not incentivize, like the private sector incentivizes. And he'll say, how can we um, ever push people to develop new products and um, new solutions to things if we're not incentivizing them with profit? So what would be kind of from a global studies major perspective, what would be a solution to this um, conundrum that we have? Right, because if you're if you're looking <laughs> to use uh, renewable or or clean energy sources, money's going to play a part in it. And I don't think anytime soon capitalism will go away. So I think being able to find find that balance, you know, I said that the environmental justice aspect often comes after the climate mitigation effort. And so what has to happen is that those two things have to happen at the same time. Can they truly exist at the same time, capitalism and environmental justice? I'm not sure, but we're kind of in this state where we need to not be using crude oils and other other fossil fuels at the rate we're using them. I, I don't have all the answers. Yeah, but, kind but, of a chicken and egg question, isn't it? It's like, yeah, prioritize our communities so that we can save the planet or do we save the planet so that then we can prioritize our communities? Right, right. And I'm, yeah, and I'm a huge advocate that it all starts with the community. That's one of the main things I've learned while, while studying global studies it, is that it might not seem like it, but community efforts, community movements can be some of the biggest levers of change. Because you can't rely on the government or the state or the UN or the World Bank for that matter or the IMF to make these changes. Lots of the progressive movements that have gotten us to where we are today are community-based. Whether it was civil rights movements in the South or if it's the Zapatista movements in Latin America, it's those coalition building efforts that have gotten us, that have saved us from who knows what tragedies um, that could have continued. How do these broader problems interrelate to University of Oregon and our current issues with transparency around stakes and fossil fuels? I would say that our community is largely centered around U of O. Education is transformative in what people know and people's tools to use or their ability to form these movements. So I think the university has a responsibility to be providing these tools. But the thing is, the university is an institution and they're always gonna be wanting to prioritize bureaucratic practices over quick change that might be needed. And so while I do think that they have a, have a really important responsibility, I also know in the back of my head, they're an institution. In many ways, they're a corporation that are, they're taking our money. We're, we're paying them. Maybe you just, you, you, can't, you can't rely on institutions, um, but they, they have a responsibility, especially when the U of O markets itself as a very green environmental university. So when proponents of the BLM movement talk about the U.S. economy being entangled with white supremacy, are you saying that all this environmental and community degradation is a part of that too? That is absolutely what I'm saying. It's important to understand how all these issues are interconnected and how the current power structure in America requires such widespread exploitation, destruction, violence, and racism. 
environmentalism is not just about protecting what we consider to be wilderness or wildlife. We always exist in an environment, everywhere we go, and the quality of our environment should not be determined by the color of our skin or how much we have in our bank account. It, essentially, we're their constituents, so they, they need to do a better job at listening. Will they? I don't know, but I hope that they do. Yeah. I think it's really tempting, too, for a lot of our student body to look at all the recycling signs on campus mm -hmm. and see our pretty green and yellow colors and all of our trees and be like, oh, University of Oregon does such a great job. They don't invest in fossil fuels. We recycle mm -hmm. all of that. How big of an issue do you think it is that the majority of our student body admittedly is very white from very affluent families and um, probably actively practices implicitory denial. They don't think that them paying this institution is contributing to environmental harm. In fact, they probably think it's contributing to environmental benefit. How big of a, um, an issue do you think that misconception on our campus is? I, I think it, what it does is it lets the university get away with things. Um, if there's no pressure on them because there's this idea that U of O is super green, then they're probably not worried about doing behind the scenes shady stuff. Just, we, we found this article a couple weeks ago. It was from 2019, but it talked about how the university is now a part of this, this energy group that is trying to shoot down the governor's climate plan. So I think that they can get, get away with a lot. How can um, we change kind of the narrative around, oh, our students are so irresponsible and privileged. They don't keep you accountable. Mm -hmm. How can we change that narrative to something that's maybe more productive? Like, okay, you didn't know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Here's some ways that you can get involved and some ways that you can begin to see um, the interconnectivity of our university's actions and investments with environmental and social issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I would so strongly encourage for anyone is to get involved in, in student organizations or non-student organizations like Climate Justice League, like, like Sunrise, like Cascadia, Cascadia Action Network, any of those, because when, when we're a part of those, inherently, we're going to be learning more and we're going to be challenging ourselves. And really, it's just doing the best you can to educate yourself. And that doesn't have to mean, you know, having to get a major in environmental studies. Taking a course is great, but also courses cost money. So if you can't listen to a podcast, because um, there, there's lots of resources out there. <laughs> it's sure as hell going to pop up in real life. And I will give our student body some credit. I, th I think that there are a lot of students and community members out there who are critical of the institutions or the or whatever that they, they might be involved in. So I think just being aware is super important. I'm not racist and I don't hate trees or birds or clean air either. I'm just trying to pay my bills. You're making the world feel so bleak and evil. The world is a beautiful place. That's why activists go to such extents to point out everything wrong with it, to protect what's right with it. The problems we seek to address are not the fault of people working in the energy industry, loggers, or anyone working a blue-collar job, but one of the biggest problems we face is the, those with the power to save the world have no incentive to do so. We must realize the different ways in which our system exploits different demographics if we hope to band together and create a livable, pleasant future for ourselves. The powerful people who profit from this exploitation aren't going to help us do that. 
it is what it is, but it still needs to change. Um, fun question. What's your favorite way to reduce your environmental impact? What have you been doing lately? Um, try to try to live that vegetarian lifestyle. I will never ever judge anyone for not being being the perfect environmentalist. Um, There's a good balance there to be found between like compassion and trying to save the planet and self-care and yeah things to balance for sure. <laughs> okay well thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated talking with you about all this. Is there anything else that you want to tell our audience? I think just to remember that you know this is a global issue. The U.S. And, and, and the communities within the U.S. aren't the only ones dealing with this. But then you also have to remember that the U.S. is a large global uh, perpetrator of these issues. So I think just being aware, and, and, and that's true for a lot of issues, we're, we're not alone in this. And there's communities around the world who are facing similar things and dealing with similar issues. Just always always being ready to learn and, and to change your mind. Um, <laughs> these these ideas are not my own ideas and you know kind of what we're discussing today comes from knowledge from whether it be indigenous black or other uh, people of color or other communities they had to experience and do the work that they've done for us to have this conversation and be knowledgeable about it so I think whenever we're learning new things just just to keep that in mind thank you for acknowledging that yeah um i can't think of anything else awesome well thank you so much yeah thank you as this interview with eloise reminds us democratizing energy sources and returning power to local communities will be crucial in the fight for climate justice in this dialogue it is important to acknowledge our personal biases and history of perpetuating injustice for example, the NAACP has long had a commitment to clean energy and climate justice, whereas many white-led climate and environmental groups only recently have accelerated their commitment to racial equality in the wake of mass protests over police brutality. It is crucial for us to remain inquisitive with respect to institutions and societal patterns, even if this implicates some uncomfortable introspection. USB, the new single from Portland-based electronic duo Holdra, which hopes to fuse abrasive dubstep production with humorous club-oriented hyperpop. Be sure to give them a follow on Spotify or SoundCloud. Holdra is spelled H-O-L-D-R-A. 
This podcast was created by members of the Climate Justice League at the University of Oregon. Our mission as a club is to educate and empower not only UO students, but any and everyone with an interest in climate justice to be effective members of their communities, while also affecting positive change through multiple direct action campaigns. Thanks again to our interviewee, Eloise Navarro, who also designed the beautiful cover art for this two-part series. This interview was conducted by CJN MVP Tegan. Editing and background music were done by me, Bryce. The voices of CJL members Jim and Max were also featured in this episode's skit as the characters of Boo Boo and The Child, respectively. Other contributors to this episode included Sydney, Cameron, Olivia, and collectively other members of the Climate Justice League. Our intro jingle was created by Eugene-based band Laundry. You can find them on Instagram by searching at LaundryTheBand. You can learn more about our principles as a club, as well as our current and past campaigns at climatejusticeleague.weebly.com. You can find us on Instagram by searching at climatejusticeleague. Oh, you're still here? Get out of here.